Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 62. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. I'm John Holstra. And I'm Greg Monty. Well, this week, where we go will be a mystery to both of us. <laughs> we, we have some loose ideas, but... Uh, well, this is sometimes when the magic happens. So what's rattling around over there for you, Greg? Things maybe we left undone last time or new insights? Well, uh, one of the things that I was working on just the other day and really kind of uh, um, gripped me is this, um, I guess, a question about emotions and what are emotions. And one of, obviously, one of the things I've been really focusing on and, and just returning to again and again, but but not sort of laying out in a really, I guess, systematic way, is this idea of love, being loved by God, being in love with God. And I think through the time I've spent here at Swiss Libri and I've been able to interact a little more closely with my mentor, uh, Greg Lowry, um, one of the things that's, you know, becoming apparent to me is that uh, I need to, I guess, take a step back, that, that there's some underlying work, some underlying um, research that I need to do. And so specifically concerning love, there's the question of, well, what are emotions? And um, what, um, how, how do they function? Are, are they in any way like, say, the way we when, we, when we think, or are they like the imagination, or what exactly are they? So is he pushing uh, you? Like, oh, yeah. Push you? <laughs> oh, yeah, and it's, that's, that's fantastic. What is he pushing against, or where, where has he kind of pushed you where you're like, oh, wow, I need to do more work here? That's where you're, this whole idea of emotions is coming up? Yeah, like I think that's one area, uh, you know, and we've talked about one of the things that I guess has become clear for me, uh, much clearer, is that I will often talk about love and truth, and I will talk about my experiences with God. And and I think that these things are very complicated, they're very multi-layered, and, and oftentimes, the, you know, I'm taking shortcuts because I want to get to the place of being able to discuss this in a practical way, and yet... As Greg's noted, you know, I'm not too sure where you're coming from in, in certain regards. And you, you made some of the same comments as well. And so I think part of what I need to do is just back up, go a little more slowly, cover some ground. So one of those questions is, um, you know, what about emotions? What are the emotions? Um, how, how do we understand love given that it's an emotion? So let's start there. Um, another question might be... Um, when you're talking about the importance of experiencing love, you know, if is it true that either love has to be just an idea or an experience? Can it be something else? So we had this conversation, and that was really interesting. And what Greg proposed to me was, love can be a promise. I can take love as a promise. And I realized that what I have been, I have been almost... You know, you and I talked very early at the outset of the podcast, who or what would be our intended audience? And I realized that even though we haven't been super, super clear on that, I think we were clear enough, but I'm still, I approach our conversations 
with a certain sort of audience in mind. And um, what Greg challenged me on is, you know, there may be ways of seeing this that you're not including because you're not thinking about it from the perspective of that type of audience. So his perspective was, hey, you could very well understand the love of God as a promise because you know what? You're not having to establish a belief in Christianity on the basis of love. You already have established it on the basis of truth. So in other words, I'm looking at people who are marginalized, who are Christians who are marginalized from the church or who are alienated from the church, people who are agnostics, people who are atheists, people who say, you know, this doesn't make any sense. And I think what he came back to me with is he said, you know, but you're taking this and you're kind of, you're not making that clear that you're looking and really focusing on those people. And you know what? Other people who may be Christians may say, I think I've got a really robust sense of of God's love, even though it's not just an idea. And no, I don't think I've experienced things that I'm going to specifically attach to this idea of God loving me, but I'm holding to them, holding to that idea of God loving me as a promise. And so I guess for me, I was saying, you can't underwrite love with anything other than experience. And I would still hold to that. But what he's saying is, or you can't underwrite belief in God through love is the best way of saying it, right? If I'm not a Christian, if Christianity is really unpalatable to me, if I have maybe, you know, I've, I'm so far from Christianity. I was a Christian, but I've, I, it's so far away from me now. I, I just, it doesn't make any sense to me. It doesn't fit. I would say that if you're coming at trying to relate to God as love, then relating to God as love as an idea doesn't make any sense. And his comment to me was, well, there are a lot of people who already, already are Christians who they underwrite, they, they validate their Christian belief through truth. And as a result, they're not needing to underwrite their uh, belief in God through love. They've got truth to stand on and they believe in this. They see truth in this and, and know, that's a enough. variety of... Because you're, you're constantly arguing that it's not. Well... Or that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, but I don't think we're talking about the same sort of quote-unquote truth on the one hand. Like you and I have picked a few bones with a few authors who would be claiming to tell us to, true stuff about Christianity, right? So with those people, I would say, Really? I don't think so. And I, I remember I remember one of your <laughs> I will I will always remember this. I don't know if this week this got captured on a podcast or not, but our, one of our discussions and you said, Oh yeah, and their amateur use of scripture and I just thought, boom just <laughs> dropping the hammer. <laughs> no. Oh I know that that was the episode with um Matthew Lee Anderson. Ah uh, the radical here come the radicals. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would so I guess, yeah, I'm stepping back a little bit to say, okay, you know what? You're right. I hadn't been thinking about those people, the people who are Christians who say, yeah, um, I believe in God because I think that it's true. Now, I still have this focus, you know, this personalized focus, which I would say, well, if the best reason to believe in something is that it's true, then the greatest truth for me is to be loved deeply by someone who knows me truly and whom I love in return. That's the most important thing, the most true thing that I can imagine. And um, on the one hand, I would think that there's still a lot of value there. 
On the other hand, I think when Greg approached the idea of holding to God's love as a promise, and then I looked at my own situation and I thought to myself, okay, well, what exactly are you hitting on when you're hitting on love and truth? And I realized, you know, I've had certain experiences um, that, you know, I'm not going to claim as absolute knowledge that, yes, this was God, but I believe, I think I've got better reason to believe that they're God than to believe that they're coincidence. It takes less faith to believe that it's, you know, this is, this is God acting, given like the whole uh, web of circumstances and, and uh, inputs, which I won't go into, you know, uh, and I think I need to at some point. One of the things that came out of that discussion was realizing that I understand the end result of these situations. So situations that took place in space and time that involved conversation and action between me and other people. And there was a sort of a, an effect of those situations, which was really to heal something that was broken inside of me. So, um, and particularly around the ability to trust and to love. So I come from a very severely abusive family. And because of that, my ability to trust people, particularly the people in power above me, and my ability to love and accept love was broken in a way that I did not understand, or I guess I was coming to understand. I mean, I'd done a lot of counseling, a lot, a lot of counseling, and gone through a lot of that. But, you know, even as I was here at Labrie, when you and I were, you know, actually before, before I met you in 96, and I'm going through this, and, and then I have something that, that occurs, you know, an event. And I realized that that event really constituted me being made whole. There was something broken in me that was made whole. And ultimately, I see that that happened as a result of God loving me and knowing me. And out of this, I have, you know, come to understand that this, these are really key things about God. God is truth. God holds all truth. God knows me intimately. God is the best source of my identity. But God also loves me. God has my best interest at heart. So I can trust God. And God seeks my good. But so, yeah, I, I think as I've been digging into that, and I still haven't got it to the point where I guess it's something I, I mean, I guess I am delivering it now on this podcast. Like we're talking about this now. <laughs> no, but I think there's something to... Tell me. I don't, well, no, I think, well, I kind of grew up in the, in the tradition, and I'm thinking of college in particular, where... And this was during the time, I don't know if it's still as big as it was, but there was a real strong apologetics movement. And it was all about truth and how do you prove the truth. And th that was kind of the pathway to saying, you know, if this is true, it has all these other consequences or outcomes. And so let's let's really be good at establishing the truth. And yet, as you and I have talked, the truth wasn't really enough for me. Because there was no mm -hmm. like real lived, lived reality. What's interesting mm -hmm. is so. Remember, I mentioned N.T. Wright, simply Jesus, a few times ago. Yeah. I wonder if there's a tie-in here. I, I wonder this could be a reach, but he's talking about in the preface. He's talking about how his goal in writing this book about Jesus is. He says, most modern Western culture, especially in America, has done its best to keep these two figures, the Jesus of history and the Jesus of faith, from ever meeting. Hmm. I have done my best to resist this trend despite howls of protest from both sides. And it's the idea that 
he's wanting to establish the historicalness of Jesus, that Jesus was really, like, existed, really walked the earth. But then mm-hmm. also to tie in the other side of, like, what was he up to and and what was the... What was the combination of the two versus Hmm. picking one or the other? So that's what I kind of hear you having tried to do with love and truth. Does that fit or not? I think there's a fit there, yeah. And, you know, I mean, your point about being at college and going through, living through this, um, you know, big... uh, uh, yeah, emphasis on truth as a as a way to as you know apologetics, and that that's how we kind of uh, I don't know bring people to Jesus. I guess I guess that's that's for me the dividing line. So what Greg's point to me about this was there are a lot of people who are Christians, and they don't have to follow your model for their Christianity to be real and 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 right. And as soon as he said that, I thought, oh uh, yes, I back off completely. Right, I'm not gonna. No, yeah, I'm and not w- going to make that kind of claim. No, 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 <laughs> no. That, that that's yeah. Hmm. And but of course, what you're saying, what I'm hearing you say too, and you know, what was my own experience was, you know, I remember sitting here in one-on-one conversations with my tutor at Labrie uh, over five, you know, many, many semesters. I mean, initially it was just two semesters, it was just six months. But I remember that that initial period. And he would throw stuff out, and I, I wasn't being obtuse, but I, I, you know, I would come right back with something else. You, 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 your point makes no sense. There's no traction. You've got it, it's like you're, I don't know. You've got this uh, this great four by four in your imagination, but you know what? In reality, it's sitting in mud. So I don't care how good it is; it's not going anywhere. I'm I'm looking to move places, and <laughs> you haven't got anything that's taken me or anybody else, as far as I can see, anywhere. And I also don't want to say that the only way to believe is the way that I believe. I don't want to say that the only way to come to faith is the way that I have come to faith. But I would say that it may well be that there are certain people that, you know, and I I, I do think I was very definitely one of them for whom something is broken, something essential to being in right relationship with God was broken. And it didn't make me a moron and it didn't make me, you know, wicked. But it meant that relationship between me and God needed a shift in order to occur. And I would simply say that what I experienced at Labrie was the beginnings of a shift that took place in 1996. And I eventually came back in 1999, spent the whole year. And I guess that's another thing that I don't emphasize as much is that, that on the one hand, there were new experiences and an experience in particular, one in particular, brought about the beginnings of a shift. But that was followed up two and a half years later by an entire year of research and of me going through, like interacting with the Bible, interacting with a variety of thinkers, uh, hitting very hard and head on some of the arguments I had against Christianity, some of the things that had defeated Christianity as a viable source of, let's say, truth, uh, if from my perspective. And then I didn't become a Christian when I had this experience that I really thought was of God. I became a Christian after that experience had percolated for two and a half years and then incubated through about a year 
of really hard study and intense, you know, thought on the subject and, and then some further experiences. And so all of that went into, and I guess when we're talking, I don't often bring in that piece about new understanding, about study, about, you know, and it's not as though, for example, when we talk about Kyle Eidelman or Darren Hufford, we're both sort of just giving our own opinions. We're frequently, a lot of the time, we're digging around in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. We're looking through some biblical sources and we're asking ourselves some questions about, well, what does the biblical text have to say? What's What seems to be... Uh, the best interpretation. We're bringing in experts, bringing in commentaries and other thinkers, and we're putting them in dialogue. I really don't think I've ever heard you say or insist that, you know, there's only this one way, that it has to be love and truth. I, The way I think of it is, I see you constantly pushing against the truth side that has per- perhaps pushed it to an extreme. Right. That, like, so we think of not a fan, Kyle Adaman. It's 100% truth, well, his version of the truth that we didn't agree with. And yet, if it's all based on that truth, and yet that truth isn't isn't really true, you're mm-hmm. hosed. And it doesn't work. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's where, as we went through that, and we're like, well, this doesn't really work. I feel that maybe that's where we, maybe that's what led you to pull in the whole love component, and the whole experience component of there has to be some lived reality to this as well. Yeah, and I guess it's that last point that I want to be really careful about is that whole lived reality piece. And I do think that that's there. And I do think, for example, if I even if I pushed Greg a little further and said, what do you think? Have you had any experiences that, I'm not asking you to call them knowledge, but that you think you'd classify as belief, that you hold by faith, let's say, as being things that are more likely to have been of God. And I'm sure that he would say yes. Now, whether he would say that those things are experiences that he would amount to experiencing God's love, that's another question. And I guess that's where I want to be really particular. I I would see this as just different, uh, I don't know, percentages. So based on personality, your own life, Mm -hmm. lived experiences. So it makes perfect sense to me that, you know, if someone is living in 100% truth i don't Mm. i have a hard time seeing how that could really work right i could see someone that's maybe like 90 98 percent lives in truth and that other two percent is experience they're just that's just the way they're wired and the way they think and approach the world and you got Mm -hmm. people at the other extreme that's much more you know 75 percent experience 25 percent truth but it seems to me you have to have there has to be some validation through experience Otherwise, it's just this big thing going on in your head. Yeah. It's yeah, uh, just, I, it becomes this intellectual exercise, and then we end up in duty and obedience and all this other stuff that, to me, <laughs> completely lacks life. Yeah. And I, th- I think I th- my, my hunch is that if I was to push back on that piece, say with Greg, and again, this is a hunch, that he would say that he has experiences of truth working out well. You know, that the experiences of truth are places where he experiences Christianity to be real. So could it be that it's truth and experience and not so much truth and love? Well, this is the interesting thing, though, because we're both. Because those are know, two big things for you. Too. I mean, experience is another big thing for you as well. Well, yeah. And I guess that this is the what he's saying is 
I agree with you on love. So it's funny because he's got his uh, – I'm reading through one of his books here. And, uh, you know, and right in, a couple times right in the beginning, truth and love, truth and love. So we're both, we're both hitting off on the same things. We're both hitting the same sort of top uh, – I don't know, the, this dual focus on truth and love above all others doesn't mean that those two things aren't, you know, they're in, and then they're, they have a, a mutually flexible relationship. Like I, like, you know, he would see it the same way I do that. Sometimes love seems to be on top of truth and that that's what's needed. And other times it's truth on top of love. Um, so I don't think it's truth and experience. I think the question is, must love be experienced in order to be love when it has to do with God? Wait, well, that sounds really heavy. <laughs> Should I understand? <laughs> Say that again. Well, I think his point to me is, you know, is the question: Does love have to be love? As ex- does, does love have to be experienced when we're talking about God loving us? And so I, guess I to this still point, don't get that. So, do we? In other words, do we have to feel it for it to be love, or can it be love? But that would get to. Oh, that's confusing to me. Is there a clear way to say that? Well, again, this is this is kind of just this week's processing, so <laughs> it's kind of fresh with me. <laughs> Sorry if I'm not being clear. I'm I'm sure I'm not being clear. Actually, no, it sounds but, like um, no, it sounds very familiar. These philosophical things that just go right over my head. So, <laughs> uh, well, I, I guess his idea is, hey, you know what? I can find other things to do with Christianity to be extremely real, and I can experience their value and their reality. But if I don't have something that I can put a push pin on my cork board, on my, you know, on my bulletin board and say, that there is an experience of God loving me. You know, so it's funny when I was talking about it to other people, on the one hand, and we never, we didn't get into it. I guess this is the other part that, that I realized that getting into this, really breaking out what this looks like is an incredibly detailed and time consuming process. And I wasn't thinking it was going to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to give you a sense from you know, Greg's going to give you a sense from his own life of what God's love is in, in, you know, 10 minutes. But I didn't quite realize how detailed and how in-depth and how time-consuming that was. And then also that, that really what I'm doing is, again, certain things happened in space and time. Certain things happened in my life. I'll go back to an event in 1996. What, what is that, 19 years ago? Uh, 18 years ago, here at Labrie, and it really happened, right? And for me, that was, again, an experience of something that was in me that was broken, that was fixed. And out of that, the understandings that I've reached and the conclusions that I've drawn are about God loving me more deeply than I love myself and knowing me more truly than I love myself. And so seeing God understanding God as love and truth and seeing how these are really salient in God and primary in God and seeing how these are really salient and necessary within me. I need those needs to be met as a human being. And I get those needs met in many ways through the world around me, but ultimately through God in their fullest sense. And what Greg is saying to me is, well, you know what, for those of us who don't, who aren't estranged from Christianity, who are Christians already and who are pretty grounded in that, some of us have come to Christianity through truth, through understanding the, the truth of uh, the Christian perspective 
as it lives, as it works out in my life, right? It's not just about, you know, it's true that Jesus was born, well, so many years ago, but it's true that, for example, that forgiveness is a necessary part of human relationships. It's true that, that a limited sort of view of oneself is essentially the most true view you can have, that I know some things, but I'm also limited, that, that I, I'm, that I'm dependent upon other people and other situations to be more independent. And these are some of the things that he would get at and he would point to, I think. Yeah, that would seem like truth and experience to me, not truth and love. So. Uh, I think so, but, uh, but I think that the truth and experience don't form two different categories. They form one category, truth with its outworking and experience, and then love. Why? Because love is so enormous within the Bible's claims that God loves us, that God is love, that this is central to how we are supposed to be responding to God, right? When we talk about what is a Christian's primary motivation, love God with all you, that you are, love God entirely, love yourself rightly, love your neighbor in the same way. But he would come at that sort of love as love is a, he's holding on to that as a promise. If he experiences that in the same way that he experiences truth as being real, then fantastic. So you know one of one of the things that one of the things that he said is, uh, let's see if I can how I'm going to quote this, but he said something like uh, you know, essentially Christianity will will give you what you need, but it may also give you more than that, but not necessarily. And what's so, the conclusion from that? Well, that, <laughs> in other words, that you it, there is truth, and you that is experienceable, and God does love you, and will you be able to experience that personally? in a way that you would sort of put a push pin on your bowl, your cork board and say, you know, this is a moment where, where God really truly loved me and, and I, I, I'm, I'm really unequivocal about that. Maybe, but maybe not. No, I, I, I did, you know, and I pushed back about the whole piece about testimony and I would still say, well, you know, testimony is really important within Christianity. You know, and I think, I think what Greg's point is, is that it's easier and safer to go to the biblical text and to get information from that, and it's, you're able to be more objective. And I would say, I hear you, but you know what? We, all of us, every day are experiencing things, and we, all of us, every day are drawing conclusions about those experiences. We're interpreting them. We're jumping off of those experiences to see the world in different ways because of them. And um, so those experiences are happening, whether, and we're making something out of them. We're giving them a certain value, whether we um, whether we're conscious of how we're doing it and that we're doing it or not. And so for me, um, experience and how we deal with it is, is huge. It's just, it's just really huge. And I want to keep, you know, pushing the, the importance of that and trying to bring out just how we do, how we should, uh, I guess, approach, uh, experience in the same way that we approach a text or in a similar, very similar way. And that's, that's why this whole thing, so I want to just jump off. I, was, I went back to a book that I really like. It's by an author named Margaret Nussbaum. She's a prof at, um, she was at UChicago when she wrote this book. I don't know where she is now. And the book is entitled Upheavals of Thought, The Intelligence of Emotions. And she writes some really, I think, really, really valuable things uh, about emotions. Now, when we say emotions, are emotions the same things as feelings? I think she's, I think so. Okay. I, I didn't, I'm sure she's got that in there someplace. I was reading the, uh, the Google books, uh, the Google books version. <laughs> Google books, I love it. 
I know. But you know what Google Books does? It's like, oh, it's like page one, two, three, four, five, skipping pages six to nine. And you're like, because oh. <laughs> they want you to read the book. They want you to buy the book. And you're like, right. I, I get that. But what, and I'll just read you a couple of things, but this is really interesting. And I guess this is where I think personally, I, at this point, I need to go and take a detour kind of back into this question of emotions. And Nussbaum really helps. Um, she views emotions as, quote, intelligent responses to the perception of value. So, in other words, things that are valuable to and for yourself. So, let me just read you one other thing. Emotions, and you'll like this. this I thought of Brene Brown immediately. Emotions are acknowledgments of our neediness and our lack of self-sufficiency. And she writes, I shall therefore refer to my view on, of emotions as a type of cognitive evaluation view. But by cognitive, I mean nothing more than being concerned with receiving and processing information. I don't mean to imply the presence of calculation, computation, or reflective self-awareness. But she is saying that there's something about emotions that make them like our intellect. Emotions involve, this is what she writes again, emotions involve judgments about the salience for our well-being of uncontrolled external objects. So about stuff, about important things, about external objects that we need for our survival, but that we don't control. So emotions involve judgments about the salience for our well-being of uncontrolled external objects, judgments in which the mind of the judge is projected unstably outward into the world of objects. So she sees these things. She says, emotions are not just the fuel that powers the psychological mechanism of a reasoning creature. They are parts, highly complex and messy parts, of this creature's reasoning itself. And that I really, really like. I think she's dead on there. That's interesting. Yeah, like... I- well, as you were reading, I thought, oh, but, you know, what if we interpret our emotions the wrong way? And then as I was thinking more in your reading, I thought, you know, I don't know where I heard it said or read it, but it was the idea that, that our emotions are not right or wrong. They mm. just are. Mm. So if something happens to me and I feel sad, it's not wrong for me to feel sad. Yeah. Or if something happens to me and I feel angry, it's not wrong for me to feel angry. It's wrong for me to punch someone in the face because I feel angry. Mm-hmm. So th- this idea that however you are feeling is, is maybe it's true. Maybe, maybe there is no interpretation. There. It's just, it, it just is. The, the, the follow-on part, though, is how are we going to respond to that emotion or feeling that we're having? That's <laughs> yeah. where the responsibility is, and that's the part that... Well, some people would say, oh, I don't have any control over that. I would, I'm not sure I would agree with that. Sometimes it feels like we can't control our responses, but I think we, we need to work towards doing that. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that they're really, first of all, to distinguish between I'm having an emotion and then how am I choosing to respond to that? Right. You know, she, well, there's one other thing here that might make this a little clearer, which I'd love to read. Uh, just one last thing. She says, emotions are appraisals or value judgments, judgments which ascribe to things and persons outside of the person's own control great importance for that person's flourishing. So the idea is these are things that are important for you to live well, whether that's your job, whether that's, I don't know, uh, your children, whether it's your house. And so when these things are in some way threatened or, you know, and I think she's thinking more sort of typically of negative emotions, but it could also be positive emotions. You know, when something really good happens, 
So she writes that there are three, three main things to do with emotions. The idea of cognitive appraisal or evaluation. So there is something going on. There's a thought that's going on. And even when, even the process of naming an emotion, that the name isn't separate from the emotion. It's separate in the sense that I don't feel the word envy, right? Or fear, but there is no sense to it without the word. So cognitive appraisal or evaluation. And I guess this is where I want to, I want to go in there and say, okay, you know, my sense from my time uh, looking back on some of the difficult things in my life through counseling and through other, other means is that there was a lot and there is a lot of um, meaning and significance in the emotional responses I've had. And then as I look at Nussbaum and as I read through some of these and how she's evaluating this, I think, yeah, you know what? This is a really good way of saying it. You know, as she said, it's messy and it's complicated, but these are highly complex and messy parts of our reasoning. And I think that's what, yeah, I'd want to take it as. Get back to that part, though, about living well or flourishing, because I was mm. just re- I, I have a jumping off point for that as well, related to some other sure. things I've been thinking about. Okay, stop me when you get to that point. Uh, so this is a quote. Emotions are appraisals or value judgments, which ascribe to things and persons outside the person's own control great importance for that person's flourishing. Ah, uh, yeah, okay, so... So the jumping off point here for me would be, I've been writing a, some blog posts and other thinking that around holding meetings, and I published mm-hmm. a blog this week reflecting on feelings and using feelings as a measurement, how we're feeling as a measurement as to whether it's a good meeting or a bad meeting. Ah. And that led me to think about a book that I picked up some time ago called... Oh, it's called Nonviolent Communication. It's written by Marshall Rosenberg. Yeah. Um, I'm sure some listeners would find things in that book they do not agree with, and I'm not sure I agree with the whole book or the framework, but I will say that I do think... So Rosenberg's contention is that feelings indicate when our needs are being met and when our needs are not. Hmm. And so one thing I did several years ago, I found on the internet a list of feelings, because I didn't feel like I was very good at my wife would often say, well, what are you feeling right now? Like, I have no idea. So I had this, I printed off this list and sometimes I would just kind of carry it around with me or just look at it and say, okay, I'm feeling really off right now. I'm feeling just, I don't know what it is. So I would just kind of go down this list to kind of jog my memory to say, well, which ones Mm -hmm. am I, which ones is this? Is it, is it that I feel tense or that I feel afraid or so anyway, I have this list. I'll, I'll point to it in the notes. And it, it, what I like about this list is it groups feelings into kind of primary categories. Hmm. And then it separates them between feelings when your needs are satisfied and feelings when your needs are not satisfied. So the one, some examples of when your needs are satisfied would be inspired, excited, engaged, exhilarated, hmm. peaceful, refreshed. And then the, the some opposite, hmm. some, Feelings when your needs are not satisfied, afraid, annoyed, angry, disconnected, embarrassed, sad, vulnerable, yearning. The takeaway or kind of the epiphany that I had this week as I was thinking about that is if we want to live, we, I, if I want to live a better life, 
I'm looking for situations and ways of living that bring me more, that, quote, more meet my needs. Right. I'm looking for situations and experience that bring me peace, that mm-hmm. leave me refreshed, that make me mm-hmm. hopeful, mm-hmm. that help me feel joyful versus the opposite ones. And so, I, in fact, I was listening to a, I'm bringing all kinds of random stuff together. I was listening to a super old Tony Robbins tape and he was talking about emotions and how they drive us Mm -hmm. and it was the same kind of idea that yeah we can have these feelings that are really really uncomfortable and really not so hot but they are very they can be very helpful indicators as to exactly where we're at that might help us point us to somewhere else that we want to get interesting huh well, it's it's funny when you talk about that list of things that you, I don't, I don't know if you call them feelings, but yeah, they're listed. Yeah, but no, the, the the things that you want to feel, the things that you you need in your life, mm-hmm. right? They're the important things, and it would be, I think, what it would be interesting uh, to compare that with the list of things that, for example, the biblical text would say, you know, these are valuable things for human beings, and these are not. So it was interesting because you started saying things like, you know, peace and joy yeah, and fulfillment, hello. <laughs> right? And these are all things that are – so I guess my thought was on the one hand, yes, and I think that's exactly what, what, what Christianity is talking about. However, there's a bounded set of what they would call to be – what they would say – they would term as the good, right? The good is the, the things you were saying, you know? But for example, you know, I want to feel uh, – you know, I want to feel in control. And I'm not saying control is a bad thing. But I'm saying, if I was to create a list that was like, you know, I, I want to be rich, I want to be in control, I want to dominate others, I want to, you know, all these other things. And, and so I guess it's this question of, well, I would come at it from the perspective of, okay, well, how is that going to play out in your life? My guess is, my hunch is that certain lists of criteria are going to work out better than others. You know, I remember hearing one of my mediation professors, uh, whom I, I thought was tons of experience. I mean, this guy, like 10,000 hours. That's crazy. Just a ton. And he's in a mediation with a group of lawyers and they've hired him to come in. And they're, you know, these are high powered lawyers and they are not working well together. The firm is having a lot of problems. And one person who is that person in particular, whom some of the other lawyers were having a lot of problems with, said some of these things like, yeah, I like it when I'm in control and I set, you know, the deadlines and I do this and I did it. And the first question that this guy asked is, and how's that working out for you? <laughs> and everybody was in, in the room was silent. And this key lawyer said, I, I pass. I'm not going to answer that. He said, I'm not going any further with the mediation. If you don't answer the question. You've called me in here to do this. I, I can't do my job if you don't answer that question. So you can pass, but I'm wrapping up. Wow. And eventually, after however, however many minutes, the person answered. You know, and interestingly, uh, she, he answered, it's not working out that well. So, you know, that's just one situation. But my hunch is that different lists that people have – you know, if you got them to the point where they could honestly and would honestly answer, but well, how well is that working out for you now that you've got that? How satisfied are you with that? I think there'd be different levels of satisfaction. And one of my hunches is that lists that are more in conformity with what the biblical text is talking about, things like, you know, easy and available forgiveness, you know, openness to others, 
uh, gentleness, patience, kindness, consideration. The more those lists would approximate the type of lists that I see in the biblical text, I bet the more fulfilling they'd be. So I guess I would say two things. One, on the one hand, I think personally that the lists we come up with, I, I think most people most of the time are going to be most satisfied with lists like what we'd find some of those New Testamental lists. You know, also, you, you can't just necessarily jump right to those lists and say, okay, well, it's in the Bible, so I guess it's got to be true. You know, as we both said, it's, that doesn't always work. Because there's no, you know, there's no experiential backing necessarily for it. But I guess part of, part of that is, is part of that experiential backing that I would say is, you know, experiencing the value. And maybe this is getting back to what some of Greg's comments to me were, that there's a certain truth in the experience of some of these things. And the experience of that truth is sufficient to merit my attachment and my allegiance to Christianity. So that smells a little bit like duty. Well, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) No, because it's, it's feel that feels like it's kind of missing that emotional component that I want that I feel like I need. Yeah. You know, and, and I think in some senses it is, but I think, I think, I think, but, but, well, hold on. So, Let's say something that you have on your list that you want to be experiencing in your life is that when you make a mistake, when you do something that you think, you know, ah, that didn't work out too well, that the people involved are willing to hear you when you offer an apology and, you know, through some way or other, with some sort of, you know, within some delay or some amount of time, able typically to accept that. Which I would say is, you know, there, there's an openness for self-awareness. There's an openness for forgiveness. There's an openness for reconciliation. Insofar as you experience that, let's say in your relationship with your spouse or whomever, you know, I think one of the things that the biblical text is pointing towards is, so I'm not trying to take away from experiencing that directly, I guess, with, with God, so much as to say that I think certain experiences of that that we have in our lives are pointers to the validity of the text and our, our valuable experiences, even if they're not this sort of, you know, direct experience with God. That sounds fair. Yeah, that sounds fair. Yeah, and I guess I'm, I'm just, for me, uh, if I sound like I'm taking a different direction here, I guess it's because I've, I've stepped back a little and I've said, hey, you know what? I've said to myself, Greg, you, you've focused a little, you focused a lot on the conclusions you've drawn from these experiences without looking at what the actual thrust of the experience was. So the thrust of the experience was something in me was broken and it got fixed. And this was an overwhelming experience. This was enormous. And the content, part of the content and part of the way it got fixed had a lot to do with being loved, me being cared for, me actually being valued and accepted pretty much as a son, which was when I come from a, you know, coming from a, a, a broken family or a, a, a dysfunctional family where the abuse stems from my father and that whole idea of being cared for as a son is, at very best, it's incredibly muddy. You know, it's very muddy, but I would say really, realistically, it's, it's, it's extremely broken. And there is no ability to trust there and there's no ability to think. You know, I think at a certain level, we talked about shame in a, 
uh, in a previous podcast, and I think it's it's it is an example of shame. It's an example when you've been abused by a parent, you see yourself in your role as a as a, as a child or as a son uh, as being a very shameful person, as being someone who has brought on this treatment. Because as a child in, a, in a, an abusive household, it's far too scary to think that your parents out of control. It's much, much, much less scary to think you've just been bad and you deserve this all along. And so that brings with it a, just this heap of shame. Yeah, I think part of that, the content of the experience for me was being loved as a son and having so much of that shame and that um, sense of unworthiness just completely stripped away. You know, and realizing that the context and the odds of this sort of thing happening for me, and I, I'm still not giving you a lot of the actual content, but I know I, I do want to do that. I do want to have that discussion, but that it was so unlikely and so unusual and required so much more faith to believe it was just sort of some strange coincidence that it happened in this Christian place in the context of like all of this, uh, you know, me pushing back against Christianity and what I knew to be, you know, or heard was people praying for me, which at the time meant nothing. But Well, what I hear you saying, and what I'm hunching, given how I know you, is <laughs> that you're, it's more that you're stepping back to maybe refine and maybe nuance a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But I would fall out of my chair if you were like, you know what, John? Yeah, this whole love thing, I've been wrong on that the whole time. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see you doing that. No, thank you. No, and I'm not doing that. You're right. I don't see you doing that. I... If anything, I'm I'm laughing to myself. It's like, well, maybe, maybe you. I feel kind of bad pointing the finger. Maybe we've accused these other guys of going to extremes and weighting some areas more than others and not having as much balance. I don't know. Maybe that's happened here. Yeah, maybe. And you know, I guess I would. I'm not not that I need to, but I would. I would just say, yeah. And if that's the case, then I'm I'm happy to kind of. Not happy, but I think that's part of what you do. No, it's you, important. That we, you, if we're going to have integrity. Yeah. <laughs> if we're going to have integrity, we have to be willing to say, well, yeah, I mean, we're doing this to try to get to the bottom of what's really there, not, yeah, grind an axe or whatever, like we've always said. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah it, totally. It requires integrity to come back and say, well, okay, I've thought about this some more, and maybe, maybe it needs uh, some more fine-tuning. So that's what I hear you doing. Yeah, thank you. That's a really good synopsis. I think that is what I'm doing. I'm not really backing away from the love thing so much as realizing that, yeah, I was really focusing in on a specific audience group. And particularly, I guess it's an audience group for whom these things are broken like they were for me. You know, and I don't know, you know, to what degree you're in that group. I don't know. I don't know what degree anybody is particularly in that group, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I think the further irony for me was here I have this experience of God and I have no interest in God whatsoever. I'm just having, I'm in this Christian place having these ongoing debates with this fellow who is, who is tutoring me or who is setting up a, who's my one-on-one resource person, if you like. And, uh, you know, he must've been knocking his head against the wall every single Friday because he had me and my, my (laughs) wife one after the other as his end of the week treats. And we were both these, you know, angry people like, you know, Christianity is a bunch of junk and this is stupid. But my, you know, her goal was to find Christianity again. And mine again was just to say, Get you rid know what? Of it. I, I, well, I'm just tired. I don't want to, I don't want to have to overreact. These Christians are idiots. They're idiots. That was my thinking at the time. <laughs> so why am I overreacting them? Let them be idiots. You know, you can sit, you can be at a party and somebody can have this view and you can, you can just say, you know, I hear this is really important to you. 
I don't share that view. And I think there are a lot of problems with it. And if you want to talk about that, um, I might be interested in talking with you or I might not. And go on with my party or, or have a conversation, but not get so darn wound up because of somebody else's crazy crooked views. <laughs> and, and here out of nowhere, I have this, this, this kind of situation that's presenting itself to me. And I'm like, wow, okay, I now have to stop and think again because something's happened that I can't discount. And, you know, eventually it was certainly, it was the catalyst uh, for me, uh, you know, after seven years as a Christian, being seven years an agnostic to then go back to being a Christian again, you know, and not to feel like I had, you know, been a traitor to myself in any sense. So, yeah, you're right. This is more about formulation, reformulation and nuancing and yeah, just, I guess, needing to step back, look at a few things put a few more ducks in the right order. And and that's where you listeners can help us. So if you're seeing some ducks out of order, <laughs> <laughs> pop some go. comments, put some comments on this episode or other episodes you listen to, and uh, we'll do our best to respond. You've been listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or over at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 62. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available at the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.